Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to Heritage. Thank you for joining us. We're going to have a uh, real fun discussion today about uh, Jason Chaffetz's new book, Power Grab. And, and to introduce him is Senator Mike Lee, a great friend of Heritage and a best friend of the Constitution. Hello. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, and it's a, uh, this merges several of my interests. Um, the Constitution conservative politics, um, uh, books about those things, the Heritage Foundation, and my friends Jason and Julie Chaffetz. Uh, I've known the Chaffetzes for a long time. I first came to know the name Jason Chaffetz over 30 years ago when he became the place kicker at BYU. He's really good. To this day, he holds some records, including uh, the most successful points after touchdown scored in a single game, and I think in a single season. Um, and he was, he was also famous for the fact that immediately after he kicked um, uh, a, a field goal or a PAT, the helmet would come off. And, and then he, he had this awesome slow jog to the sidelines. And he became famous for that. It became known as the Chaffetz, and I think it resulted in something called the Chaffetz Rule. But I, I actually think it played a key role in his, um, in his success as a statesman in the state of Utah. People came to know him, and uh, they, they knew who he was. I remember um, many years later, uh, long after he had played for BYU and had a successful career as a businessman, I, I met him in person for the first time. I was quite starstruck because, you know, he was a big deal. Um, I met him while he was running... Uh, governor Huntsman's campaign for for governor uh, before he was Governor Huntsman, and uh, he uh, Jason Chaffetz himself convinced me that um, John Huntsman was the man to be to become Utah's next governor in 2004. We had a long conversation about it at the Utah County Republican Convention, and uh, several months after that, after Governor Huntsman got elected, he called me and and informed me that I was under consideration for a position within the Huntsman administration. And I said, I didn't apply. And he said, I don't care. We want to talk to you anyway. So we went over there and had a chat. Uh, Jason Chaffetz and John Huntsman and I, uh, we hit it off, and um, uh, we ended up working together. I, I ended up serving as Governor Huntsman's general counsel at the time when Jason Chaffetz was the chief of staff. But my most important role during that time period was when I became Jason Chaffetz's chauffeur. Um, <laughs> He, uh, he and I uh, uh, lived closer together than any other two members of the senior staff. And, and at one point, uh, Jason broke his foot. Uh, long story, we won't get into that. 
Because it sounds like the punchline to a joke, and it was actually quite serious. But uh, he fell and, and uh, broke his foot, and ha- it had to be in a cast. It had to be elevated for several months at a time. So I would go and pick him up uh, at his home in Alpine, Utah. He would sit in the back seat of the car so that he could keep his foot elevated. And I asked him if he wanted me to get a hat, a uh, chauffeur's hat. And I didn't charge him anything for it. The only thing I charged him was um, he had to agree to be subjected to my lengthy rants on constitutional issues and to listen to tape-recorded Supreme Court arguments, which who wouldn't want to do that? But I digress. We're not here to talk about any of that. We're here to talk about the fact that, uh, first of all, Jason Chaffetz is a hero when it comes to defending individual liberty and fighting against big government. He's someone who's willing to call out uh, the, the left, uh, uh, both who, those who identify themselves as part of the left and also those who just want to build big government. He's someone who understands the fact that there is something of a zero-sum game when it comes to defending liberty. If you are a government, as you get bigger, as you become more powerful as a government, you do so at the expense of individual liberty. He understands the fact that government itself is not and never can be, never will be, omniscient, omnipotent, or consistently benevolent. Government is itself the use of collective force, organized force, and it's run by fallible, mortal individuals. Consequently, we have to carefully constrain its power, and we have to make sure that it's not abused. In his latest book, Power Grab, uh, Jason Chaffetz explains how the levers of government power have been orchestrated in such a way as to effectively weaponize uh, the, the threatening power of government in a way that advances the political agenda of the left, or uh, uh, another way of describing it might be advancing the political agenda of those who would expand government at the expense of individual liberty. Uh, he blows a whistle on, on how they have weaponized the use of uh, criminal investigations in order to achieve a particular political outcome. Now, to be clear, as Jason Chaffetz makes clear in Power Grab, this isn't a, a simple question of uh, the red team versus the blue team. Um, this is a question of uh, liberty versus centralized government power. Now, we've, we fought a war over that. And we won that war. And we shouldn't be eager to go back to a system in which government knows best and in which government holds all the power. We as a people are the sovereigns. And we can't go back to a time where that is not the case. And that's why uh, uh, Jason Chaffetz's book, Power Grab, is such an important tool uh, for those who want to live in a land where they are free. Whether you call yourself a conservative or a liberal or a libertarian or something else, uh, it, it, it shouldn't matter. What should matter to you is the concept of liberty, is the concept that government exists for, the, for certain limited purposes to make sure that we're secure in, um, uh, and, and to make sure that we have an enterprise uh, that uses collective force for the purpose of defending life, liberty, and property. The more we deviate from that, the more we run into a very real risk of a power grab where we become less free and less secure in our lives, our liberty, and our property. Uh, 
I, there's not a day that goes by that I don't miss having Jason Chaffetz uh, uh, serving in the House of Representatives. Uh, he was someone who, in addition to um, being a, a trusted friend and colleague when we worked in Governor Huntsman's office, he's someone who uh, I, I um, uh, came to trust and, and love working with when he was serving in the House of Representatives and, and uh, during my ter- time in office in the Senate. There were, it's hard for me to remember an issue where he and I took opposing viewpoints. Um, he and I worked together on countless issues. I take comfort, uh, though, in the fact that he's able to do an enormous amount of good where he is in informing the American people about the risks of big government, in keeping them afo- informed of what's going on in Washington. And uh, he, he's exercising a lot of influence by writing books like Power Grab, which I highly recommend. So with that, please join me in welcoming Jason Chaffetz, the author of Power Grab. Uh, Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Thanks to Senator Lee. I appreciate it. He had a vote, and now he's got to hustle back because he's got another vote uh, on the floor there. So uh, probably best that he do that. So besides now, I get to tell Mike Lee stories while he's not here. So that's even better. Uh, I did. I first met Mike. This is amazing to me because we were at the Utah County Convention. There's literally a 1,000-plus people at this event. And this gentleman comes up, and we start talking, and he introduces himself as Mike. And I said, what, what, do you have a card or something? Like, what's your... What's your full name? And he said, Mike Lee. And I, because I knew he was a spitting image of his father, who was the, the previous, had been the, the president of Brigham Young University. And he said, Mike Lee. And I said, Any relation to Rex Lee? And he said, Yeah, that's my dad. And I could tell already, I mean, I already knew that before I answered the question. I could tell he somehow related to him. Well, Rex Lee was the solicitor general for Ronald Reagan. Um, and he had argued some 100-plus cases, I believe, before the Supreme Court. So fast forward to when Mike's the chief of, or I'm the chief of staff and he's the general counsel. One of the best things I did uh, while I was uh, chief of staff, and it is true, and I broke my foot for a couple months. I, I broke my right foot, and so I couldn't use the accelerator. I tried to convince my wife that I could drive left-footed, and she said, oh, no, you're not doing that. And he would drive me to and from every day. And what he didn't tell you is that he had a cassette tape player in his car, and he would like to listen to his dad argue these Supreme Court cases. So he would literally put the cassette case, you know, tape in there. That's how much the guy loves the law. And we would listen to the oral presentations before the Supreme Court. And I learned a lot, but that's what Mike does for fun. He's not listening to music or something like that. So... You gotta love a guy who's that uh, that that committed to it. Um, Mike's gonna walk us through here a few things. I want to acknowledge my wife Julie, who's here with me. Um, I appreciate her being here, and uh, I appreciate all of you being here. I want to thank the Heritage Foundation for for making this all possible. The the good that Heritage does in terms of uh, informing people, being a resource. While I was in Congress. Even after I've been at Congress, it's such a great resource and so many good minds thinking through tough issues. Uh, so, so helpful. Um, the quick of why I wrote the book, 
Um, as I say at the beginning, uh, Stephen Covey, who is from our congressional district, he wrote Seven Basic Habits of Highly Effective People, uh, seek first to understand, then to be understood. And I, I wholeheartedly believe that. I also believe what Margaret Thatcher said, and that she said, first you need to win the argument, then you can go out and win the votes. And I had always felt, even before I came to Congress, even before I ran, but certainly it became more evident once I was there, that Republicans, conservatives, we were very pathetic in our communication. First of all, we were getting no help from the mass media. The national media was not going to be a conduit to which we could get our message out there and have the platform or the time to be able to do that. Um, so it was compounded by that. But I've always felt like we, uh, as conservatives, had the right message. We just didn't say it very well. And we didn't say it enough. And it, I remember when I was first in Congress, I met with uh, Eric Kanner, uh, who had a senior position at the time, because I had been invited to be on Fox News. And I had, I couldn't believe it. And so I called up Eric Kanner and I said, are you all right if I go on Fox News? And he's like, Jason, are you kidding me? You need to go out there as much as you possibly can to get out our message and go on every other network you can possibly get on and talk about why you believe what you believe. It was the right answer. It was good advice. And I would argue that we need more people who can get in front of those cameras to go on all the networks to talk about what it is we believe and give that perspective. I don't buy into the idea that you need to just sit back and, oh, well, they're not going to give us a fair shake, so we're not going to go on there. I did probably more interviews on MSNBC and CNN. You probably didn't see them. Not that many people saw them, but it, um, uh, then I did even on Fox News. And so eight and a half years in Congress, then I left, and I'm very blessed to have this contributor relationship with Fox. But I always felt like, gosh, I can still contribute in the public square because now more than ever, I can get out there and talk about issues that matter, that matter for our country, and at least from a conservative standpoint. And it's been very blessed to have this relationship with Harper Collins, who did my first book. It's called The Deep State. It was New York Times bestseller. Uh, and then we just launched this book. Uh, literally, it's like seven days ago, Power Grab, which is sort of the, it bifurcates into two different areas. How is it that the Democrats are using the levers of power that they currently have uh, to do things that you all wouldn't necessarily see unless you'd maybe been in Congress or you're really, really paying attention? but you need somebody to draw your attention to them. And then what are the things that they're doing outside of Congress to change the dynamic and the narrative? And those are the first two chapters of the book that should scare the living daylights out of you because um, they are doing some things on the left that will affect all of us, whether you realize it or not. We as conservatives and Republicans don't play offense nearly enough. Democrats are always playing offense. They're always on offense. And that's what I think I articulate here. But Mike's going to walk us through it, and then I think we're going to do some Q&A. At least I hope we do. So yeah, let's no, get after it. We can open it up to Q&A at the end. Yeah. Um, full disclosure, I worked for the, the former congressman when he was the chairman of the House Oversight Committee. So a lot of the stuff in, in his book are some, some memories of the, the good times we had when he was running the committee. So we'll, we'll go through a couple of those. But I'd like to start off with uh, your final town hall. Right after Trump was elected, things yeah. got ugly. 
I think that's a good table setter for kind of what the environment looks like now. Can you just tell us a little bit about that and uh, what it tells yeah, us? Yeah, this I, I take a, a write about this in the in the forward. I had won my fifth term into Congress. Uh, I was blessed to get seventy three percent of the vote. This was roughly four or five weeks, as I recall, after Donald Trump had been sworn in. So we're talking, you know, the heart of winter in Utah. And all of a sudden, I'm having town hall meeting. Now, I have had, I don't know how many town hall meetings. I love the town hall meetings. Usually a group about this size. People can interact. I learn a lot by the questions that they're asking. It's a good format. The quick of it is, uh, Democrats got a hold of this. And they had this group called Indivisible Utah, which had a national presence, but they had a specific manual about how to take over a town hall meeting. This thing blossomed and blew up into a thousand uh, plus people that were showing up and they wanted to create this illusion. Okay, it's a, it's a recurring theme. But they wanted to create this illusion that a conservative Republican in a safe district who just happened to be the chairman of the oversight committee with the newly minted president of the United States, Donald Trump, was that his voters were mad and they needed to do his job and he needed to hold the president accountable and he needed to, you know, do this and do that. And they had this long list of demands and things that they wanted me to do, much of, much of which I didn't think were within the purview of the United States Congress. And uh, so much so that it got out of control and you got to read the account, but you know, you had 30 plus police officers, you had people openly carrying weapons with mast in the parking lot. Um, we had SWAT teams there. It was, it, it turned into quite a fiasco. The highlight of which I'll give you is that w there were two members of the national media that had shown up. Now, I don't remember ever having um, national media show up to my town hall after I win my, won my fifth election with 73% of the vote. You know, we're weeks into the, to the 115th Congress. Really? Well, this one reporter, she insisted that she interview me. And I said, well, let me talk to her on the phone first. And I said to her, why are you here? Like, why are you here? Well, we have a source in San Francisco that says there's going to be a riot and perhaps a fire. And I said, really? I said, um, did you ever think that maybe you should, did you tell law enforcement about that? Did you, if, did you call my office about that? I mean, I, you're only telling me this because I asked you why you're here. And she said, no. And I said, you're going to literally put a thousand plus people in danger. If you think there's going to be a riot and a fire, potentially you're telling me that people might die. You believe there's enough credibility. That's why you're here. And these people were doing live shots for my town hall meeting. And it just, it, I call it the last town hall because it's the last one that I ended up doing. But this is how these people play. There is this kind of recurring theme in here that, they really do believe on that radical far left side. They, they throw all these labels like fascist and all these really negative terms on Donald Trump. But what I see them doing is exactly what they, they claim the president was doing. That in order to protect our freedom, they need to take it away. In order to 
make sure the First Amendment's in place, they need to take away our, our rights under the First Amendment. I mean, it's just a recurring theme, but I could go on and on about this particular town hall meeting, but it, it was used as a tool and a prop. They paid people to come in. There were people from all kinds of states there, they, but they wanted to create this media illusion that it was an organic Utah phenomenon in a conservative Republicans district and, and that they were going to run all these stories and say, look how much problem Donald Trump is creating for everybody, which was not true. And in your book, you get into a lot of examples of double standards or hypocrisy. One of the most telling, I think, is how when you first came to Congress, Republicans were referred to as the, the party of no, right. as obstructionists. But now the media and others like to call the left the, the resistance, this kind of mythological name that connotes some positive like justification. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, think about it. How often have you heard the Republicans or the party of no that just because we're somehow opposed to a public policy position that Barack Obama and the Democrats were championing, that we were the party of no. But if all of a sudden now you don't wear the conser- the uh, liberal credentials unless you are anti-Trump, no matter what, no matter what position he possibly takes, they're going to take the opposite one. I mean, I did that when I was like in third grade. You know, I'd say, yes, you did. No, you didn't. Yes, you did. No, you didn't. Yes, you did. No, you didn't. Yes. Well, what? Oh, they didn't know how to answer the question. Right. And um, and it's very true. I saw somebody today on the street wearing a black shirt with white lettering. It said resistance like they were proud that they were part of the resistance movement. Well, let's be a little bit more adult about it and tackle it issue by issue. If you disagree, we disagree. But let's have that debate. And I really do believe that the more conservatives uh, actually have the debate, we win that debate. And I've been going around the country telling people, and I want to share this message with you, I really do believe we can't be afraid of having that discussion, but let's also talk from our hearts. I'm tired of conceding the compassion card to the Democrats. They are not the more compassionate, caring group. And what I worry about sometimes when we have the debate and the discussion, we want to smother people with statistics and, and you know, numbers and the study. I think we also, as conservatives, I got my campaign hat on a little bit, also need to talk a little bit about why we believe what we believe. I, I think we are in part successful because we talked about principles. No matter what the issue is, let's go back up to the principle. Now, my guess is if you're here at this meeting this day, you have a set of principles that you believe in. But I think that a lot of conservatives forget to step one. Let's talk about why you believe what you believe. Then we can argue about how do we get there and the individual policy position. But that's not what Democrats want to shut down the debate. They want to create this evil appearance that how dare you? That's why I think all this polling that we do day after day on television and newspapers, it's just a bunch of hogwash. People don't want to admit out loud that they're going to vote for Donald Trump as opposed to, say, a Hillary Clinton because they don't want their neighbors or somebody else to beat them over the head with it. And they just try to embarrass them. And that is part of the strategy. They want to embarrass people. So, One of my favorite parts of the book is when you put your investigator hat on and start digging through the tax returns of a bunch of the big nonprofits on the left. Uh, What did you discover in how these operations are financed and some of the shady accounting tricks? And full disclosure, as a nonprofit here at Heritage, I'm glad I learned about these tricks for the first time in this book because we don't do any of that. So 
this is what I think people need to understand. If you look at the priorities that they have put forward in Congress, and you look through any poll that's out there about what are the most important issues, right? You're going to hear about health care. You're going to hear about the economy. You're going to hear uh, about immigration. Well, why is it that Nancy Pelosi has HR1, right? Uh, House Resolution 1. What is her first bill? Is it have anything to do on Pew's top 20 or top 50 issues? No, it doesn't. H.R. 1 is about how to reconfigure elections. She wants to reconstitute how we do elections in this country. Because it's their calculus, this is my theory that I lay out in the book, that they have to reconfigure how they do vote, how we do voting in this country in order for them to win long-term. So one of the weapons of war, I think, is something that I'm guessing 98% of you have never heard of before, and that is that they have learned to weaponize not-for-profits. Planned Parenthood, Southern Poverty Law Center, the ACLU, and I got a laundry list of them in there. We have been through what's called the 990. 990 is a form that they need to fill out essentially as the top line tax return for a not-for-profit. And what you're going to see consistently in these 990s is a for-profit entity called Grassroots Campaigns, Inc. There are 100 different types of organizations that this uh, Douglas Phelps has been involved with. He's done fundraisers for Joe Biden. Barack Obama, when he first came out of college, went and worked for this organization, credited this, this organization, not Grassroots Campaign Inc., but the one that Douglas Phelps is involved with, as teaching him all he needed to know about how to, how to win campaigns. Believe him. Believe Barack Obama. This is how they learned how to do this. Here's the way it works. You are a 501c3, which is a not-for-profit, where you can get, if you make a donation, you get a tax write-off. Then there are 501c4s which are allowed to engage in, in more politics, but have a different tax treatment on how uh, you can write off your taxes and talk to your tax accountant if you have questions over which one's which, okay? But these 501c3 organizations, as a not-for-profit, this gentleman here could go and make a $10 million donation. He's going to get a tax benefit from doing so. But that Nonprofit organization is hiring a for-profit organization, Grassroots Campaigns, Inc., who will do fundraising. They will put on T-shirts, ACLU, Southern Poverty Law Center, Planned Parenthood, and then they'll start knocking doors. Planned Parenthood will go and knock on your door and say, hey, we're raising money, 50 bucks, you know, for Planned Parenthood. You with us or against us? Oh, I love Planned Parenthood. Yeah, I'll give you $100. What does that tell you about that voter? What does that tell you about that person? Do you think they're going to vote for the Democrat or do you think they're going to vote for the Republican? Oh, you hate Planned Parenthood. You think they're awful organization. Oh, ding, 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 ding. There's a voter that we have now identified that we don't want to have voting in the next election. What they do is because the for-profit entity has now gathered all this information, then they go and they work for the DCCC, the DNC, in swing states, and they can go out and target individuals bypassing all of the, all the campaign finance rules. 
If this gentleman wanted to participate in an election, his individual campaign contribution limit is $2,800. And there's certain things you can and cannot do with that money. But the problem here is if you look at the charts we put in there, Planned Parenthood, for instance, over an eight-year period, every single year they hired Grassroots Campaigns, Inc. to do fundraising, they lost money. They did not raise as much as they spent. And then they'd hire them again and spend more money with them. They lost something like $11 million over eight years. Why would they do that? Why would they do that? I raise that as a question because if you're going to have the IRS do an audit, this is the place they should be doing an audit because they are strictly prohibited from engaging in this type of campaign work, and yet they are blatant about it, and I wish everybody would realize it. Second part, and i got to move quickly here. I address it later, not in the first two chapters, but later on HR 1, I can't remember which chapter number it is, about vote harvesting. Now, you may have heard about this term, but basically, Democrats in legislation have supported the idea, they want to make this law everywhere you go, that you do not have to be present to actually vote. Vote harvesting allows somebody, not to pick on this gentleman here, he just sat in the prime seat here, can go around, in fact, there's a Los Angeles Times story about this woman who is an undocumented person, she's here illegally, she's not, she's without, you know, she's just here illegally, going out and collecting ballots from all of you, can go knock on your door and say, I know you didn't get to the poll. I know you didn't want to fill out your ballot. I know it's inconvenient for you, but if you just give me your ballot, you know, fill it out. I'll turn it in for you. Anything you think could go wrong in that uh, sort of scenario? Yeah, a lot can go wrong. If you look at their, I believe it's eight seats in California that the Republicans lost in the last election, there were thousands and thousands of votes that showed up after the deadline that came in, oh my gosh, miraculously in favor of the Democrats. And in, in proportions that were totally different. Why are we having this special election in North Carolina? It's illegal to do vote harvesting in North Carolina. Ironically, Joe Kennedy, congressman from Massachusetts, complained about it. See, the Republicans are cheating. You just, you just voted on legislation to make this legal everywhere in the country. This is but one thing out of a list of 30 that the Democrats are trying to do to grab back more power, change the way we do things, and if we don't open up our eyes and be cognizant of it, they're going to blow through this. I don't know how you win an election in California when Democrats play by different rules than Republicans and engage in this type of vote harvesting. I think there's evidence that it happened in Arizona against Martha McSally. There is evidence that it's happened in other places too. Uh, even in Utah, there's some allegations that thousands of votes showed up after the deadline. Democrats elected as the county clerk. Democrats elect. What are you going to do? Who, who's going to be the eyeballs to watch on that? It's a scary scenario. Well, congressional oversight has yeah. changed quite a bit since you left Congress, and unfortunately not for the better. Yeah. Certain things were out of bounds when you were there, but now it seems that the more personal, the more vicious... Uh, the more likely the left will call hearings and investigations into these topics. How do you think it's changed and what damage has it done to the institution? So the, the, I guess the thing that make, it, it will make the biggest mark on you, the biggest kind of philosophical change, 
The Oversight Committee was founded in 1814. It was there to oversee any and all government expenditures. Now, it's had gyrations, different um, committee names. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, when he came on uh, the committee, uh, this was his committee assignment when he was in the United States Congress. It's, uh, it's interesting. He, he became known as Spotty because he was challenging the president. Where were the origins of the Mexican-American War? And he didn't believe. I mean, there's a great history there of this committee and what it's been able to do. What's interesting is what changed when I left because the Oversight and Government Reform Committee changed. And now Nancy Pelosi, Elijah Cummings changed the name of this committee. It's just called the Committee on Oversight and Reform. See, Democrats don't believe that government is a problem. They think it's a solution to everything. They don't need to go look at what government's doing because government is all good. And what you see now are hearings and a press to go after individuals and individual corporations. That is not necessarily the purview of the United States Congress. Again, the committee is this wide, probably the widest berth of any sort of jurisdiction. There are two Supreme Court cases that we lay out here where oversight was wings were clipped back to try to get it on the straight and narrow, which is look after government. We had hearings, for instance, uh, uh, Mylan Pharmaceuticals and uh, uh, the EpiPen situation, you know, the Pharma Boy, where we did call in, into uh uh, individual corporations. But what we also did is called in the FDA and Health and Human Services to say, how does this happen? What Elijah Cummings is doing is now demanding and sending out subpoenas and directives to go in letters in record amounts to look under the books without any evidence of wrongdoing, by the way, presupposing the outcome on fishing expeditions to go look into the lives of individuals. And if you have proximity to Donald Trump, look out, because that is a prime time target. This operating agreement, which nobody has seen the light of day, between Elijah Cummings, um, uh, Jerry Nadler, Maxine Waters, Adam Schiff, and I wanna say there's a, there's a fifth one in there, about how they were going to do investigations and how they were gonna do impeachment these people laid this all out before the 116th Congress even started. But it's all premised on the idea that they were going to be essentially, I believe, the campaign research arm for the Democrats. Uh, I think that's what they're doing right here, right now. There is no justification or evidence to, to justify a lot of this. They just literally want to find out what, 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 let's go figure it out. Then we'll go and figure out what the crime is. But it all starts with the idea and the premise that we don't need to look at government. We need to look at people. We need to look at individuals. It's kind of scary that the congressional, you know, the, the branch of government that they would engage in this kind of witch hunt, this kind of power grab, this sort of uh, diving deep. It, it is scary, the abuse of the power that, that, that's going on there. And one of the most high-profile examples, obviously, is the confirmation process of Justice Kavanaugh. Mm -hmm. You talk about how choreographed it was from the opening scene. Maybe you can give us a little sneak peek. Yeah, we, we go through, I mean, there are whole books you could write on just the Kavanaugh situation. But the pre-work, what we try to focus on is the work that they were doing and the outlines that they had. No matter who it was, this was going to be 
this was going to be a narrative about a frat boy who was just out of control and gone awry. I mean, the clearest example, and it's been out there, it's not brand spanking new in my book, but we remind people about the, the press release that was already written with XXXX. They just needed to fill in the name. And uh, when you see that in some total in retrospect put together in the way we did it in this chapter, I, I, it reminds you of how evil and how bad it was. And I do think it's almost humorous that these Democratic senators, every single one of them had pledged to vote no and then complained about the lack of openness and transparency. You still have Senator Schumer and the others say, and this is a trick they always do, right? They always do this. They ask for things that they know cannot be given to them. You cannot reveal by law grand jury material. You cannot, there is executive privilege that a president has with his senior most advisors. What Jerry Nadler does time and time again, and they did it in part in the Kavanaugh situation, is they ask for information that the president has executive privilege on. It's the same claim that, that uh, Barack Obama claimed. Believe me, I wanted to get Ben Rhodes before our committee to talk about that Iran deal. And I, started, I invited Ben Rhodes to come testify before the Oversight Committee. He was, he was in the New Yorker. He was doing public uh, speeches. Well, certainly he has time to do all the media and public speeches. He can come talk to Congress about this. Oh, no, 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 no. They claimed executive privilege. They said there's a separation of powers issue, and I dropped it. I didn't issue a subpoena. The difference now is Cummings and, and um, Nadler will issue a subpoena and say, see, they don't comply. But they know that if it goes to court, they will never win. But they don't care because that court date's going to come after the next election. They want to create a narrative. I guarantee you, you're going to hear Nadler and Cummings and the others say, we issued a 250 subpoenas. They never responded. Most of them are wholly bogus, and a court would just laugh them out of there. The reason Jerry Nadler became the chairman of the Judiciary Committee is he went before his colleagues on the Democratic side of the aisle and said, I'm better suited to pursue impeachment. Do, come with me. I'm going to do impeachment. And that's how he beat out Zoe Lofgren, who, um, and he became the chairman of the committee. And this is what he's doing. He's abusing his power. So one last question for me, then we'll shift to, to okay. Q&A. We'll end on a positive note like you do in your book. Yeah. What's the path forward? What should conservatives be looking towards to kind of rein this in? So um, I tried to do this in the deep state, and I did this in Power Grab on purpose. I don't want to just lay out all the bad, right? You, you come and you listen to the meeting, and you're like <laughs> bummed out. Like, a, you know, it's not the feel-good meeting of the year. Try to end on a positive note that the Amer this is the greatest country on the face of the planet. Somehow, some way, the American people figure these things out. They sniff out authenticity. They understand uh, these issues. But we have to be aware of them. The very fact I write that you're reading the book is good news. The fact that people like want to dive deeper on these issues. But I also think it's incumbent that we engage in federalism, <laughs> that we, we push back on the Tenth Amendment. We push these. Federal government does too many things to too many people. So much of this either shouldn't be done at all or should be the purview of the states. Somehow we got to neuter the power of the, of the federal government and just get them out of so much of this, this business. Um, and I think a lot of those answers will be 
pushing forward states' rights and, and doing those types of things. But it also takes making sure that we're engaged uh, as a people and that people individually get and decide that they're going to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And, and so with that, I, I can't thank you enough for being here and hearing me out, and I hope you hope you enjoy the book. I really do. But if we have a few minutes for questions, if you got to go, I totally get it. But if you have a few minutes for questions, I'd love to do it. You mentioned the conspiracy behind the town halls and creating disruption. And we know during the rallies, all the Trump rallies, that uh, Project Veritas had that tape showing Democrat operatives saying they paid people to go to incite violence. Those are felonies, what they did to you, what they did to him. Um, I actually went to the party and asked them, were they going to prosecute? It's a great way also to (laughs) get discovery on the Democrats. Um, but nothing ever happened. I mean, I think we really have to pursue things like these. These people that are inciting violence, and we know there's several, you know, last count was like close to a 1,000 attacks on Trump supporters uh, and, and Republicans. We've got to do something legally to, to really lay down the hammer. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that. I think there was one person who was arrested, and they, they basically took her out and then just released her. They didn't charge her with anything. They did detain her. Um, she was going a little little crazy. Uh, I can't imagine what it's like at, uh, at, at Trump rallies. There, there's good and bad at this thing. First of all, the organic energy behind Donald Trump. The, you could go anywhere in this country and probably get 100,000 people. I look at the Democrats, you know, a Joe Biden rally. Um, oof, they couldn't pay enough people to show up to fill a, fill a high school at the auditorium with those folks. Um, I agree with your premise in general, overall, because I think you see this everywhere from what uh, U.S. Attorney Durham's dealing with at the FBI. I I think there is a huge swatch of Americans who does not believe that there's an equal application of justice under, uh, it's just, it's one-sided. And it's unfortunate, and I think, my, my grandfather was a career FBI agent and I think if he looked at the FBI today, he would cringe. But I'm trying to say is, and I think it happens all across the board, um, you can take these illegal immigration cases. You can take uh, simple town hall people trying to, you know, yelling, screaming, disrupting, threatening, carrying weapons on school grounds. They, I don't think they arrested anybody. I got pictures, body cam pictures from police officers I trusted their judgment in my town hall to make the right decision and keep the calm, and I think they made all the right calls. They learned from some of these others where the escalation happened. But then I look at Portland, and I see you know Antifa and others just running roughshod, and nobody's arrested, let alone prosecuted. And I think that's wrong, and I, and I think conservatives are right to point that out because I think we've been on the receiving end and it's gone on too long, and there doesn't seem to be any consequence to truly threatening or aggressive behavior where there's an actual assault. I really think you touched on something that's much bigger and broader than my town hall stuff. Yeah, sir. I think they're broadcasting part of this, so we're going to quit this. Will Trump win 2020? Uh, Will Trump win? Yeah, I think so. I I think so. I uh, I think he will lose... Uh, some states, like California, with the vote harvesting, it's going to come down to um, 
enthusiasm. I mean, I'll, I, I want to be optimistic. House races are really hard to predict because there's usually a local issue. And at the end of the day, it's one person versus another person. You know, and uh, you, it's really hard to tell who the personalities are on, on both sides. Um, I think in part it's a referendum on Donald Trump, but it's going pretty well. You, you can complain about the tweets. And if you're complaining about the tweets, then, you know, you're looking for an excuse not to, to, to vote for him. I think if Donald Trump gets a trade deal uh, done with China, uh, I don't. I think that it's going to play so well right into the Democratic base, blue collar uh, uh, workers, but also into the farming community. But it's true, the Chinese have been playing dirty. My girlfriend went to China in 1978 with Carter as an exchange student there. Man, you got to be, your girlfriend, what is she doing hanging out with? Huh? <laughs> you got to talk about your background. If your girlfriend was hanging out with Carter, but they, yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, well, no, I'm just teasing. Oh, I see. Yeah. So she was one of eight students and went to his state department. And uh, she said there was nothing there. So we gave them everything, and now they're paying us back. Yeah. And Look, I think Donald Trump earns credit on both sides of the aisle. Uh, no matter how much you get people talking heads on television, I think people are like, yeah, we finally have a president who's standing up to make it, to make it right. So let me get this gentleman right here. George Soros and all these guys that are funding these activist groups, can't be, something be done with those guys? Like George? Well, the, as I point out in my book, what I really think needs to happen is these not-for-profits that are openly engaging in these types of campaign tactics, they need to be audited by the IRS. The IRS spent an awful lot of time uh, audit, you know, making sure these 300-plus conservative organizations never got the authorization to exercise their First Amendment rights. The size and gravity of the of the IRS. Why are they not looking at these major players and how they're doing this? Because line, it's simple. You can look at it in two minutes, line after line, year after year. They lose money. Why would they do that? Like, what is the answer to that question? Maybe a congressional committee should ask that question. Uh, but I think more importantly, the IRS should should do that. I think that's so so wrong. And by the way, we point out how Planned Parenthood they park millions overseas and what they do in Africa to insist on allowing abortions we point out and I, I want to make sure I get the statistic right particularly on camera here so I want to refer back to the book but I believe that they spend more on abortions in some of these countries than they do in food and water aid it's kind of disgusting what they're what they do there so yes ma'am thanks for what you're doing and for the book um, I think that I don't know if you would agree with me, but don't you think that an uneducated electorate is why we have this blatant power grab? That's a big part of why my whole premise of my book, the whole idea is that you have to, again, seek first to understand, then to be understood, and make sure you win the argument before you go out and try to win the votes. If you don't make this argument and inform people and say, <laughs> do you think it's right that a not-for-profit charity is engaging in politics. I think most people say, no, no, they shouldn't be doing that. Mm -hmm. But you have to engage in that. I totally... Wouldn't you say, though, that it, it, we have one of the largest, as the millennials come of age to vote, and... <clears throat> 
excuse me, and the generation behind them. I taught school for 10 years, and you probably know where I'm going with this. I would love to see us make a case for return of the school systems to local entities, not national, not the NEA, not the U.S. Department yeah, no, of Education. Look I, I, look, I signed on to the bill that said there shouldn't even be a U.S. Department of Education. Let the money follow the kids. It, it, we should do this at the local level. As I look back at our kids, all went through public school system, very grateful. We had a good education system, pretty good, I think, in Utah. Um, but history, uh, civics. That's what I taught. And financial education, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. how to do a checkbook and stuff, was like almost non-existent. And, and it was really pretty pathetic. But you have situations where teachers like me who are conservative and who never, I never ever stood in front of my classroom and said, I'm a Republican and I want you to vote Republican. I told my civics class, I said, before you leave this classroom, you will be registered to vote. And I said, that's all I care about is that you register to vote and that you go vote. The union rep came and talked to me yeah. And she said, you will not be allowed to be con- continue to be covered by the liability insurance if you say things yeah, like no, that there, because you're not doing the talking points. Yeah, they, look, the whole education system, we're going to need another couple hours to go through that. <laughs> so. But thank you. Yes, sir. Um, uh, just a quick question. Many think that we're losing Fox. Um, and uh, for those of us who are watching in a long time, uh, it's changing dramatically. And that's a big, big deal for us going forward. Um, what can you say and what can you smile at? No, I'm, gl- you. I'm glad you asked that question because, you know, when I showed up at Fox and uh, I had an offer from another network as well and I went with Fox and Fox, I said, uh, all right, so what would you, what do you want from me? What, what do you need from me? And they said, just you be you. If you want to, we just want your gut. We want authenticity. However you see it, you call it. Don't think that you have to support the president. If you do, great. If you don't, that's great too. But whatever you want. I think Fox is finding a niche in a place. And what I appreciate about Fox is that it is the only place that I know that truly opens up the debate to both sides. And I will tell you, as a conservative, we should never, ever be worried about hearing from the other side as well. Because you know what? It makes my argument stronger. And if I can't win that debate, shame on me. So I love the fact that they're giving time and opportunity for Democrats and liberals to state their point. I look at it and say, are you kidding me? All right, bring me on. Let me let me debate that uh, ridiculous, asinine position that you just took on and win the argument. And I wouldn't worry about that at all. So I hear some people say, oh, Fox, even the president. Say, oh, Fox. It's not there to be a political arm of just one you know, voice and one political side. I, I like the fact that they, they allow and give opportunities to both sides. It's something I think America is striving for. And I think given the chance to have that argument, conservatives win 99 out of a hundred times. So got time for one or two more. Sure. Sure. Yes. Going back to the NGO issue. Uh-huh. Has the IRS shown any interest in looking into these? Because this sounds like a huge, huge negative impact on the country. So, I mean, has there been any interest or Well, the book's effort? six, seven days old. So I'm hoping on you all in Fox and others. I wrote an op-ed for foxnews.com. They let me on the air to talk about it. I'm doing the book tour. I'm, you know, I'm doing all I can to draw attention to it. And hopefully there are some, some members in the House and Senate that... Um, you know, we'll also do something along with it as well. Um, but I think it's 
for most people, it's brand new information. So we'll see. We'll see. All right, one more, real quick. Yes, sir. Sorry, the microphone there. Yeah, there you go. You've you've uh, noted the the nexus between the uh, liberal camp, uh, the NGOs, the media, obviously, right. uh, but there's the emerging power of the uh, social media giants, mm -hmm. the Googles, Twitters, yeah. what have you, that uh, not only maintain enormous amounts of information about us, but control the flow of information and and influence the the actual discussion you know what we're talking about right. to what the issues are um what's the appropriate uh, response to this emerging uh, power center no you you highlight something that i think we'll all have to deal with you know when i was the chairman of the oversight committee i did something that never been done before we created a subcommittee on information technology not only emerging technologies and how the government spends 250 billion dollars i'm sorry $90 billion on 250,000 employees uh, on technology. That's how much we're spending as taxpayers, but also to look at some of these dilemmas out there. Um, I think it was more than 40, um, I think it was a bipartisan group of state attorneys general uh, are now filing suit against these behemoths uh, of organizations. As a conservative, I'm a little bit uh, torn because I do believe as a private entity, they can do what they want to do. And if consumers don't want to go that direction, they can go another direction. Our own son was on Facebook uh, and then a couple of years ago dropped it. He said, it's just a cesspool of negativity. It's a waste of my time. And and I think he didn't like that his parents also got on and tried to friend him. So, you know, that didn't, <laughs> that didn't help as well. But... Um, I think the, the court ruling is interesting that the president can't, the rule was that they can't delete uh, followers. And I tweeted back, as best I could, saying, well, does the same hold true in that are they, as the Twitters and Googles of the world, can they hold back from allowing people to see the president's account and other people's account? I can tell you, if I put up a too conservative post barely goes to anybody. And I've got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of followers, and it maybe goes to 1,500 people. I'm like, really? Are you kidding me? Why do you think 250,000 people on Facebook signed up as a like, and I put out this and only went to 1,500? Really? And then I'll, I'll test it. I'll put out something else, and it'll go to like 40 or 50,000 people. Really? something in those algorithms is not being done in a straightforward manner. So long-winded way of saying, I think people need to have exposure uh, in terms of content. I think it's fascinating what Europe is doing in terms of the right to be forgotten. I think there are child issues that have not been dealt with. Previously, the law allowed a 13-year-old to sign up. What other instance do we allow 13-year-olds to engage in a contractual obligation? And if they decide as a 15-year-old that they no longer want their content in Europe now, they have to delete it. It has to be gone to the point that they can be sued for that. So lots of issues. Maybe Heritage will come and have me come back because I'm passionate about this stuff. But you highlight something that's very imperative. But at the same time, let's just be honest, as conservatives, the national media and the social media, they're going to be fighting against us. But you know what? At the end of the day, there's a reason why Donald Trump won 30 of the 50 states. Because I believe as I go around the country and talk to people, American people, 
we are still a conservative nation. We still believe in the basic tenets of conservatism. And that will win the day. But we do have to educate and we do have to get out there and talk about these things. And I thank you for being involved and engaged. And I hope you like PowerGram. And I appreciate my cowl and heritage for having me here today. So it's 102. I'm two minutes late. So thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. That was great. Really Thanks. appreciate it. Only got through a few of the questions. But yeah, no one's going to do anything. Yeah. Just softballs. Yeah. Get the combo going. <laughs> no, 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 no. Do you have time to sign? Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay.